Okay. Good morning. All right. We'll, we'll let you hug again in just a minute. All right. I got to meet a couple of uh, first-time guests. I know there's probably others, but if you would please fill out the registration on the guide, rip it off, and throw it in the offering plate. That's all we ask you to do. And on the inside, I'm going to let you read the details, but our food drive of our, for our church, you can read about what it tells you to do there. Our straight-up sports, uh, getting ready to go into soccer before long. Uh, finishing up basketball. You can read those details. Men, this is our, our Tuesday night. Last month, we had over 100 men that showed up to our uh, men's meeting. We'd like to encourage you to please come. Let us know if you're coming so that we can make sure we have plenty of food because we do love to eat. All right. And we have a great time together just fellowshipping as Christian men. All right. Thank you for being here. Let's stand again and welcome somebody around you to church.
power to take our lives from the ashes they are in, put them together, and move us on, Father, and make us whole again. You are the only one. So we turn to you this morning, Father, no matter what kind of mess we're in in our life, no matter what we've done or where we're coming from, Jesus, we know that you are able to do that. We ask you to take this offering, what we give to you as worship, magnify it, glorify it. In the name of Jesus, amen.
God, you're good. You're so good. God, we don't deserve your goodness, but you're good. You're unchangeable, you're unshakable, you're undeniable, you're, in, you're incredible, indescribable. You are good. God, in these moments as we come to your message, may your words speak to us. May our pastor challenge our hearts that we will leave out of here changed, maybe leave out of here healed, or maybe leave out of here knowing the goodness of who you are in our circumstances because God, you are good and you never change and your goodness will last from generation to generation for those who know that don't even know yet, you, they will know one day. Thank you for your goodness, God. Speak to us now. Praise things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, while you're getting uh, your, hopefully your notes out and stuff and uh, we get ready for this next sermon. I had a, a great privilege this last Monday night to go to an event and meet a bunch of uh, uh, professional baseball players, uh, some from the uh, Tampa Bay Bucks, and I got to meet a, a guy that I used to know and watch, Ron Blumberg, uh, pitch for the, or not pitch, but played for the uh, New York Yankees and won a championship with them, got to chat with him, and uh, uh, I don't know if y'all remember um, Shamsky, Art Shamsky that played for the Miracle Mets. He was uh, also um, part of the uh, Everybody Loves Raymond show, remember? When the, uh, the big tall guy, Robert, named his dog Shamsky, and they were going to visit uh, the Miracle Mets, and they got to meet them there. Got a bunch of neat people. Of course, our own Mike Hampton uh, was there, and um, that's kind of cool. I want to be invited next year, okay, to go back. <laughs> it was cool. Enjoyed it very much. Um, little homework assignment for you before next Sunday, and that is to read 1 Corinthians 5. You can do it in about four, three or four minutes, really. But take your time, read 1 Corinthians 5, and then you'll know why I titled next week's message, He's Doing What? And you're going to, um, you'll understand before we ever get here next week. But today we're finishing um, this first little section where Paul, in the first four chapters, is talking about divisions. And without going back over all that, it, it was mainly over some theological issues, but mainly about leaders and playing favorites with leaders, putting too much emphasis on the leader um, in, in their spiritual life rather than the Lord. And of course, Paul is going to direct them directly back to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we'll be picking that up today. Um, and that's just a little bit of a background. First Corinthians chapter four, if you have your Bibles. Now I do want to reserve the right that in this series, cause it's going to be a long series to every now and then break it up with a, with a, a, another sermon that, that I just feel that the Lord wants me to give one of them that I've been working on and hopefully we'll be able to share with you in the next I don't know, a few weeks, but coming up is on the sinking of the Titanic and what that meant and means spiritually uh, for us today. Have, having said that, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 
try to do this today and do it in a, in a, in a way that, that we can all follow. One of the things that we, we struggle with as pastors is we do this so much and we study this stuff so much that it's like, well, we're not you sitting there listening maybe for the first time. And that's kind of what we want to be able to do today is get the main point across today on being a leader. Now you say, well, I'm not a leader. I, I'm in a church or anything. Well, you're all leaders somewhere. It may be in your home. It may be in a business, but you're all leaders somewhere. And moms and dads, I got a special part of the message, especially for you. All right. We have a generation of Americans who now for the most part, and rightfully so, distrust authority. And many will say that, well, it's because of the generation that uh, some of my group, we inherited things like Watergate and all that stuff. And, and, and some of you are even old enough to remember that uh, we had a president named Clinton that built an entire justification for lying to the American people about his marital infidelity based on the unbelievable excuse, well, it all depends on what the definition of is is. Y'all remember that? Man. Anyway, um, I'm pretty sure, and I think you agree, that whatever the institution may be or powerful people, whatever they tell us, it's probably not the full truth. And uh, it's probably carefully spun for their own interest. I have long given up on there ever being an objective, unbiased media. Everything feels like fake news to me on some level. Uh, if you don't believe that, 8 o'clock at night, 9 o'clock at night, on the weeknights, turn over to Fox News and watch about 5 or 10 minutes. Then turn to CNN or MSNBC, watch about 5 or 10 minutes, and you will just absolutely believe they're in two different worlds. I mean, seriously, two different worlds. And then I thought, well, distrust of authority is part of our heritage. It's in our bloodstream. I mean, sorry, England, but no taxation without representation. Remember? And you can keep your tea. We don't want it. Um, and then our, our forefathers were smart enough to set up a three-tier branch government system where one branch can cancel out all the others because even back then, they don't trust any of them. Amen? And we, we probably don't today. My point is that for good reasons and probably bad, we distrust authority. And of course, this attitude affects a lot of people's view of leadership, even in a church. And sadly, sadly, we do see in, in, in churches a lot of the same abuses of power that we see out in the world. I mean, we see TV pastors stealing money and doing things they shouldn't be doing. We see priests abusing children. We see evangelical leaders doing the same thing, falling because of money or morals or whatever it may be. So all that makes Paul's explanation in 1 Corinthians 4 of how we should view leadership in the church so important. Now, verse one, I'm gonna break it down into about three sections. Here's verse one, the first part. He says, this is how one should regard us. Okay, who is the us? Paul and the leaders. 
the ones y'all been talking about, bragging about. Paul, Apollos, Peter, this is how you should regard us. So let me just say right up front for you to fill in the blank, the Bible is pro-leadership and pro-authority. The Bible is pro-leadership and pro-authority. It really is. But there's good authority and there's bad authority, right? And in this chapter, Paul is going to give us four characteristics of good authority in a church. This is how, and, and some of you in here that are leaders uh, and pastors uh, or whatever, we need to understand this. This, this is so important to me that, that the Lord has spoken in my life over the last four years of how we should be uh, leading and acting as leaders in a church. There's been a trend where in, in the evangelical world that they have had a tendency to elevate leaders who are real high on charisma and pretty low on character. And we've got to be very careful about that and how to avoid that. Um, and it's something that we all, we meaning me, that we all have to deal with and watch. But everybody at some point plays the role of leader in somebody else's life. A parent leading a Bible study, a small group, teaching kids. Maybe you're the, you, you um, run the nursing floor at your uh, hospital or wherever you work, or you're a, a shift leader at um, wherever you work, which means that what Paul is going to say here about himself applies to me and to you. Are you ready for that? All right, are you with me so far? Got the background, right? All right. Now, let's read some more of verse 1. This is how one should regard us as, what is the word? Servants of Christ. And what's the word? Stewards of the mysteries of God. So right off, Paul gives us two of the four characteristics. Number one, a Christian leader is a servant. A servant of Christ. And folks, listen, even as a pastor, you might be a leader of other people. You might even have in some sense authority over them. But my fundamental identity is that I am a servant of Christ. That is primarily it. And that means a couple of things practically. I want you to write it down. That means as a servant, it is never about your will, meaning my will, or my desires. If you're a servant, that's, it's not about that. And interestingly here, Paul uses a word for servant that he doesn't use other places. He almost always uses the word doulos, and that is his typical word. But here he uses the word hyperetos, which literally means you are an under rower. To explain that one, I will. It's like being on a boat. What he's saying here is Jesus is, how many of you ever watched people rowing in sync, rowing? What, G, what he's saying here is you, Jesus, is the coxswain. You know what that is? The coxswain is the person that's keeping everybody, row, row, you know, row. And here's something that's very interesting. Paul's calling the, the, the Lord Jesus that, and, and of course us, but I don't know if you ever noticed this. 
the coxswain, the leader, is the only one facing forward who can see where they're going. The other ones are all, it's going backwards. And folks, part of the mission statement of our church says, following the Holy Spirit. Now, in 30 years, we've tried. We've not always gotten it right. We've, we've, we've messed up along the way at times. But the, the, the truth is, what we've tried to do is even in the mistakes and correct them and say, Lord, dear God, Holy Spirit, what do you want from this church? What do you want us to do? So first, it means his will, his desires, not ours. But secondly, being a servant of Christ means that I or whatever leader, we see the group of people that we're leading as belonging to him, not us. You don't belong to us, leaders. You belong to Jesus Christ. And that's how we better view you, that you belong to him. Now, that has a lot of blessings for us that we, we just be faithful and, and you're responsible to the Lord. Amen? All right. So, and, and by the way, I know, I know that God is the owner of this church. And to be quite honest with you, I don't know of any pastor that's not indispensable. I mean, that is the bottom line. I remember years ago, it might have been 40 years ago now, that I heard a pastor out in Colorado say, if you want to see how important you really are, put your hand in a big bucket of water, pull it out, see how fast the hole fills up. One of the best examples of this in the Bible is John the Baptist. At one point in his ministry, you know, everybody was going to John, to the Jordan River, by the thousands, repenting, getting, getting saved, and getting baptized. And then when Jesus came on the scene, everybody started heading toward Jesus, and rightfully so. And so then at one point, um, John's disciples came to him and said, John, I mean, do you see what's going on? I mean, you've done all this groundwork. You've done all the background stuff, and everybody's leaving you and going to the, to the man you said is the Messiah. Doesn't that bother you? And what did John say? No. He must increase and I must decrease. That's the attitude that we're to have. And then, if you keep reading, we won't read that today, but he compares his role of leadership to being the best man at a wedding. I was shocked in the first service. Let me ask you this one. How many of you men have ever been the best man in a wedding? Raise your hand for a minute, really high. Well, not quite as many, but still quite a few. All right. Traditionally, the role of the best man in a wedding, particularly in a Jewish wedding, was to support the groom. Now, in our tradition, the best man, you know, will stand wherever we're at. And if there's a best man there, they'll stand usually right to the right of the groom and, and maybe a little bit behind. And, and, and traditionally, their job was to make sure everything in the wedding went well. Um, but folks, here's the thing. If, uh, if, if you are the best man and you're doing your job, you're invisible. Um, you know what I mean, not literally, but you're invisible. I, I will never forget the first three weddings that I did. As you know, I keep a computer list of every funeral, and every wedding, and 620-something funerals 
And I don't know how many weddings, not, not as many, thank the Lord. Weddings are harder than funerals. Anyway, uh, they, they are, they are. But I'll never forget looking back, and if I looked at those even now, the first three weddings, and then I've got a little line there because that's where things changed. Because, man, I was so new. I had never done a wedding before. It was so exciting. I mean, you know, they, they wanted to do it up really big. And, and uh, this is out in Colorado. And they, they you know, they, they wanted me to wear the same thing they were wearing. So they rented me a suit just like they had on, you know, the same color and everything. And um, put that, started to call it a corsage. But I guess for a man, it's a boutonniere. And, you know, I, had, I was going to wear a boutonniere. And, I mean, I just thought I was hot stuff. I mean, you know, and I thought, and here's the thing. I mean, I'm acting like I'm just as important as everybody else there. But let me tell you something. After about three weddings, you realize you too should stay in the background. It's not about you. You know, it, it, it's, it's about, and, and by the way, men, let me say this to you. And I, I've said this to every man that I've ever done a wedding for. It ain't even about you. It's about that lady that's going to walk down that aisle. That's who it's all about. And, and my job was to be okay being invisible uh, in that wedding. So the question for you is this, if you're assigned a leadership position, do you see that as a service? Fill in the blank, by the way. Do you see that as a service? If you're a boss in here, do you see that as a place where you can lift up your employees on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ, you ought to be. That's what it should be for. If you're a parent, we're going to talk to you a little bit more in detail later. But do you see as, a, uh, as Christ's tool to help you to, to grow your kids for the purpose of raising them up and then one day letting them go? And that they will belong to the Lord? So we, we are to be a, a servant. What's the next one he said? A steward. That we're to be a steward. Finish verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of what? The mysteries of God. Well, what does that mean? What are, what are the mysteries of God that Paul refers to here? A mystery. Well, it's not whether Adam had a belly button or not, which he didn't. But anyway, it's not about that. It's not about, well, is there a zone, uh, region 50, area 51 in the Bible? You know, it's not about things like that. Here, it's simple. The mysteries of God is the gospel. How do we know that? Well, you read the, the three chapters before it. But folks, these Jewish people that he's talking to, they, um, they grew up sacrificing animals. They knew that in order to have their sins covered, they would put their hand on the head of that animal. And that animal would then die by either cutting its throat in front of them. Can you imagine that? I can't imagine that. That'd tear my heart out, no matter what kind of animal it was. But that's why it was so drastic. And it was to show them, for you to be forgiven, something's got to die. And so that would, be, that would make it very serious for them. And so the mystery is simply this. Hey, guys, we don't have to do that anymore. The lamb 
the Lamb of God has come, and he's died, and he shed his blood, and that's all that's needed anymore. That's the mystery of God that he's talking to them about. He uses a very similar word. Listen, he also uses the word oikonomos. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, it's Greek. It all sounds Greek to me, but it's Greek. And here's what that means. It means being a household manager. You know what they had in those days, especially if you had a big family? They had a steward that oversaw the family affairs. He would, and, and some of you with kids ought to love this, he raised the kids, educated the kids. You know, he planned the meals, got the food and put the meals together and just saw that things were running right. Um, and that was his job. And Paul's saying, that's our job. Now, here's what that means to me as a pastor. And that is this, I don't decide what the kids eat. Daddy, my father's already decided that, what you're supposed to eat. And I'm just supposed to dish it out. And it's not going to always be tater tots, you know, and um, Twinkies. Once in a while, it's going to be vegetables. And you, if you don't like what we're serving up to eat, take it up with daddy. Right? We're just a steward. Verse 3, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. Why? Because it is the Lord who judges me. Folks, at the end of the day, you answer to the Lord and I answer to the Lord. We don't have to answer to each other in that sense. Are we, are we responsible for how we act in front of each other? Yes. You're not saying that. But we are charged. Listen, you, you, you shouldn't be surprised at the end of the day if you're a Christian leader, and a lot of you in here are. We have a lot of Christian leaders in here. You really shouldn't be surprised by criticism. It's going to come. I mean, think about this. We are charged to represent Christ in a world that murdered him. And how can we think that we're not going to suffer if our Lord suffered? The Bible says in Proverbs 26, 12, the one who is wise in their own eyes, there's more hope for a fool than for him. See, there's criticism that comes from certain people that I'm going to listen to because I know they love me and have my best interest in mind. And, but truthfully, criticism bothers me, amen? Just like it bothers you. It, it will bother you for a while. Uh, but listen, I gave up a long time ago. One of the best things I ever gave up was trying to manage everybody's opinion, right? And I resigned as the general manager of the universe. <laughs> I'll never forget when I just started preaching, I had not been a couple of years, and I was in Colorado, and I would send my mother every month the cassettes of my previous sermons. Do y'all know what a cassette is? Do y'all know what a, do you know what a cassette is? No? Okay. It was a little thing like that, that kind of like a CD. You know, you know what a CD is, right? CD. I'm joking with them. 
But believe me or not, they don't know a lot of what a cassette is. But anyway, I would send my mom cassettes of the sermons. And I'll never forget, I sent her a series. And it was, the first sermon was the reality of heaven. I did that here one time. And the second one was the reality of hell. And the next time I talked to her on the phone, after she'd listened, her pitiful little voice, Lord, if you preach like that, everybody's not going to like you. And I, you know, that just, I laughed. She wasn't laughing, but that's true. There's going to be criticism. And then number three, a Christian leader is a surrogate. A surrogate. Let's look at verse six. Paul says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos. In other words, all these things we talked about for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written that none of you may, will be puffed up in favor of one against another. Remember, this whole church, the division, uh, chapter 1 through 4, that's what he's dealing with. And yes, as I mentioned the first week and last week, God uses different people at different times in our lives, amen? But he is the one working in them and through them. And as I said also in the first week, there will always be famous people in Christianity. I mean, Billy Graham, we all know things like that. You know, Charles Stanley, this with the Lord and uh, David Jeremiah and, you know, people that we just, we, we admire. There's always going to be people like that. But the problem is if a Christian cannot transfer what they're thinking and feeling about that pastor to the Lord Jesus Christ and that he becomes the most important thing in their life. Now, let's look at how Paul starts this section. It's kind of interesting. Back at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, we didn't read that last week, so let's do it now. He says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as what? Infants in Christ. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, see, he's repeating it again, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human or literally childish? Childish. Moms and dads, I told you I was going to get back to you for just a minute. Let me do that. Paul says, first of all, here, to us, your dependence on earthly leaders is not a sign of spiritual depth, but spiritual immaturity if you're looking too much to a human. Now, the analogy here, talking about parents and infants, I believe is great. For listen, moms and dads, are y'all listening? Would you say amen? amen? Okay. Wow. I've heard a lot of people didn't sound like a mom and a dad. All right. I meant mom and dad now, raising kids. But anyway, um, for a while, you parents are going to stand in the place of God for your kids. Please hear me. This is very serious and sober. When your kids are little toddlers and they're growing up and they're junior or uh, elementary age and growing on up, everything they learn about the authority and the care and the love of God comes through you as their parent. 
And that is by design. The Lord intended that. We, we are supposed to learn, they are supposed to learn to love and trust and obey God by learning to love and trust and obey you. That's the way God intended it. And that is why right in the middle of the Ten Commandments, the first four are all vertical. It's about you and God, about not having other gods and observing the Sabbath and all that. The last ones are all about horizontal, how you treat and deal with other people. What's the hinge? Obey or honor your mother and your father. And that's how they, love to, they learn to do that. So over time, we want our children to wean their faith off of us and learn to put it into God. Amen? And you have to work with that. You have to know when and when to give up some things as they go along. But eventually, you're wanting them to learn to trust God. And Paul says, all right, that's how we leaders are with you. In fact, he calls himself a spiritual father. Let's look at verse 14. He says, I am writing you as my dear children, for I became your father in Christ through or Christ Jesus through the gospel. Verse 16, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. It's back again. Who is Paul? Who's Apollos? I didn't die for you. I didn't get baptized for you. You were, you know, uh, our spirit's not what lives in you. It's the Holy Spirit. And Paul uses that phrase, by the way, in Christ over and over and over. Folks, human leaders come and go, right? They do. And some will disappoint you. Are you listening? All right, please hear me very well. This church will disappoint you at some point, in some way. And I will disappoint you in some little way, perhaps, but I will eventually disappoint you. And if I've never disappointed you, it's only because you don't know me that well. There are two kinds of authority in a church. One, you write it down, there's bad authority, and that is where leaders use their power and their privilege and their position to gain for themselves or to direct attention to themselves for power or money or whatever else. Then there is good authority where leaders use their power, their privilege, or their position to direct people to him and, and offer themselves. And that leads me to number four, and I gotta go very quickly here, so I'm gonna try to summarize. A Christian leader is a spectacle of suffering. What I'm gonna tell you now these next few minutes I absolutely do believe. Let's read what Paul says, first of all, verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we become a, what? Spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. 
To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Folks, Paul is saying to us Christian leaders, you should expect to suffer. It is going to happen. And so many leaders today will will get in a pulpit and tell you that if you're following God, you're going to be healthy, wealthy, wise. Things are not going to go wrong. You're not going to get sick. You're never going to need surgery and all that baloney. That's just not true. And a lot of times they feel kind of shocked and like God has let them down and didn't hold his end of the bargain when things go wrong. Martin Luther used to call it the theology of glory. And he said, no, it's not the theology of glory. It's the theology of the cross. The cross. So are you listening? Those who God is using the most through the spirit of the Lord Jesus are probably those that ought to expect to suffer the most. Come on. Verse 8. And don't miss this. This is unbelievable, great sarcasm. If you want to read sarcasm in the Bible, here it is. Paul says, oh, already you become rich. Oh, without us, you become kings. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise in Christ. We're weak, but you're strong. You're held in honor. We are held in disrepute. A.W. Tozer, great godly man of the past, said these words, it is doubtful whether God can use a man greatly before he's hurt him deeply. Can use him greatly before he's hurt him deeply. Philippians 3, chapter chapter 3, verse 10 says this, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection And participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. I'll never forget the time I heard that sermon preached on that. And the guy kept pounding and pounding and pounding that I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. And it was the power of the resurrection in this area, this area, this area. I mean, seven or eight areas. It was, you know, nothing but that. And I kept thinking, and, 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 it says, and. It doesn't end there. The power of his resurrection and the fellowship or the participation in his suffering. And when I put those two together, it's like this. Are you with me? The fellowship of his suffering is the only way to the power of his resurrection. That's what it says very plainly. Famous story. Some of y'all remember quickly the biblical story of when Peter and John Uh, After the resurrection, they were about to go into the temple to pray. And there was a man there begging. That's how he made his living. And he was expecting them to give him money. um, And and they didn't. And so Peter looked at him and said, silver and gold, I have none. But what I have, I'm going to give you. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And he healed the man. Well, many, many years ago, 
St. Dominic, this 12th century, an earlier reformer of the church than when the Reformation took place, was visiting the Pope. And folks, back then, in those days, the Pope just accumulated money and wealth galore. And the things they built, the churches they built were, un I, mean, I watch it almost every night when I watch the travels in Europe of all the things that they built and the money that they hoarded and, and around themselves. And he jokingly said to St. Dominic, he said, well, you know, thinking about Peter, because they believed that popes were um, in line with Peter. Peter was not the first pope, by the way. And anyway, um, but he said this to St. Dominic, he said, well, Peter can't say that anymore. Silver and gold, have I none? Look around. And St. Dominic said, yeah, but neither can he say, rise up and walk. Because there wasn't any power there. You know, folks, whatever, if you feel wronged, suffer well. Amen? Suffer well. And the things that have come into my life, I want to get to where I suffer well. And the Bible says, let me, in conclusion, verse 16, I urge you then to be, Paul says, imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. See, Paul says, look, I'm no different than you. As an apostle, I'm not on a different plane. I'm not sitting in a position of power. I'm just going to try to lead you by my example. But I want your eyes to be on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. You know, a few years ago, I'll start closing. I'm not going to mention his name, mega pastor, huge mega church, and came up with the idea. In fact, in the book he wrote about it, it stated that when a, a pastor gets to the place where he's leading over 500 people, he ought to become the CEO of the church and forget about being the servant. Well, in that sense, absolutely. But I just want you to know, and, and it's easy to fall into that, you know, about being the, the, the leader, that kind of a leader. But folks, I want, you to, I want you to understand this right now. I fundamentally reject that. I don't believe that's accurate. Now, I don't care if it's 500 or 1,000 like we got. I don't care. Gulf to Lake Church is not a company. We are not a corporation in that sense. We are the church of Jesus Christ. That's what we are. And the bottom line is if I could, it would be like what Jesus did. The, the one that created the universe created it all and was going to die on a cross for the sins of the whole world, got down on his knees and put a towel around him and took a cloth and a bucket of water and washed the feet, the dirty feet of those disciples. And I think that's what our attitude should be as leaders and as servants. Let's pray. Some of you may have been hurt in the past by spiritual authority. And I just want to say I'm sorry. If it came from me or someone around here, I'm sorry. 
because I believe to abuse your spiritual authority is a sin. And we should stay away from that. If you're a leader, think about being a servant, a steward, a surrogate, and a sufferer. Lord, I just come to you this this morning and I thank you for the hard lessons that you've had to teach me over the years of realizing just how frail we are. And how we're to love and serve the people that you give us. We thank you. And we praise you. And I want to ask you right now, if you've never given your life to Christ, I told you I was going to do that, regardless of the message, to give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I'm here for, is to point you in his direction. He loves you. He loves you more than anybody in this world will ever love you. And he wants to be with you for eternity, believe it or not. And as we sang those words that we're going to sing in a minute, I can sit here right now and say to you, in spite of all that I've had to go through, all my life you have been faithful. You have been so good absolute truth so Father please Holy Spirit only you can move in the hearts of people to bring them to conviction of their need for you we ask in Christ's name Amen let's stand and sing together all my life you have so much. It's a beautiful day out there. Enjoy it. This is the day the Lord has made. So let's rejoice and be glad in it. Have a great week.